And Matthew 3, 1 and 2, And in those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. According to Mark 1, 4 and Luke 3, 3, John preached the baptism of repentance for remission of sins. Matthew 4, 17, Then Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark 1, 15, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Luke 13 and 3, Except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Verse 5, Except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. When the apostles were sent out on the limited commission, according to Mark 6 and 12, they preached that men ought to repent. And when our Lord gave the great commission, according to Luke 24, 46 and 47, He said, Thus it is written, And thus it behooved the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. The Apostle Peter in that great Pentecost sermon set forth the gospel. And he said, according to Acts 2.22, You men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by wicked hands, have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, for it was not possible that he should be holden of it. He was telling that Jewish multitude about the death and the resurrection of our Lord. And then at verse 38 he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In connection with the gospel, he set forth a demand for repentance. Hence it follows that repentance is a gospel command. But repentance is important in the lives of those of us who are Christians. Peter, in speaking to an erring brother, according to Acts 8.22, said, Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus, through the apostle John, wrote seven letters to the seven churches in Asia, and he told five of those churches they needed to repent. In talking to Brother Terry Smith today on the telephone, he pointed out what all of us recognize as being true, namely that the Christian life is one of daily Repentance. Over and over again, repentance is emphasized in the New Testament. At Acts 17.30, Paul said, In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. At 2 Peter 3 and 9, God is not slack concerning His promise to some incount slackness, but His long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In Romans 2 and 4, It is the goodness of God that leads thee to repentance. Well, you can see the kind of emphasis found on this subject in the New Testament. And for a few minutes tonight, I want us to think about what it means to repent. And I submit to you, first of all, that repentance is not conviction. Now, conviction is the awareness or the realization that one is a sinner. And it's absolutely mandatory that one come to this conclusion before he can be saved. According to Luke 18, verses 9 to 14, Jesus told of a publican and a Pharisee who went up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee said, Father, I thank you that I'm not like others. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not unjust. I'm not even as this publican. I fast twice a week and pay tithes of all that I possess. The publican stood afar off, would not so much as lift his eyes to heaven, but smote himself upon the breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he went down justified rather than the Pharisee. The difference between the two men was simply this. The Pharisee was not convicted and the publican was. We have to be aware of our lost and undone condition before we can be saved. 
we must see that we are afflicted with a spiritual malady before we can be healed. First of all, then, one must be convicted before he can repent. But it's possible for an individual to experience conviction without ever experiencing repentance. The individual in the Old Testament who said, I have sinned more than any other except David, was King Saul. Repeatedly he said, I have sinned, but he did nothing about it. He just continued in his wickedness. He was aware of his, his sin. He was convicted, but he was not a penitent person. The individual I'm about to describe, some of you know quite well. You've talked to him about his soul. You've heard him say, I'm a sinner. I'm in need of divine grace. I'm lost. And you think, well, he'll turn to Christ soon. But six months later, and he's done nothing. You talk to him again, and you hear the same story. Six months later, he still hasn't acted. You talk to him the third time. He gives you the same story. Conviction, yes. Repentance, no. My friends, there is absolutely no merit in admitting that one is a sinner unless he takes the steps necessary to correct the sin in his life. Many a time in gospel meetings, I have seen folk under conviction who did not respond. I saw two men last night. They were perfectly wretched. Neither of them sang. One of them had his head dropped. He wouldn't even look to the front. But neither of them responded to the gospel invitation. I've seen people a time or two that I thought, if you had gone to where they were standing after the service was over, you would have found the marks of their hands in the back of that pew which was in front of them. I watched them while we sang, and it looked as though they were going to pull the thing off. I've seen some even take the first step, but they wouldn't take the second. Were they convicted? You can bet your bottom dollar on that. Were they penitent? No. The Apostle Peter in that great Pentecost sermon told of the Lord's death and His resurrection. And the Bible says when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? There was conviction. There was the fact that their consciences were laid bare. They were cut to the quick, quick, cut to the heart. And following that conviction, Peter said, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So conviction precedes repentance. It comes before it. One can experience it and not be penitent. But in the second place, repentance is not fear. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are two kinds of fear. First of all, there is the fear of the Lord. At Ecclesiastes 12 and 7, we're told to fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. In the book of Proverbs, we learn that the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom. Most of the people in this audience are college students or associated with the college. Surely none of, is, none of us is anti-educational. And I would urge you to learn all you can. Spend your time studying. Make sure you learn your discipline. But when you're getting all of this knowledge and all of this learning, make sure you obtain also the fear of God. Because the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. And it is the beginning of wisdom. If someone were to ask me, which would you prefer for your children, a college education or the fear of the Lord, I wouldn't have any difficulty in answering. I would far rather my children fear God, speak monosyllables, and go to heaven, than not to fear God, speak nine languages, and go to hell. The fear of God is the very beginning of knowledge. 
It's the very beginning of wisdom. And that means you may be able to write your name and then put down B.A., M.A., Ph.D., L.L.D., H.H.D., even D.D.T. If you don't fear God before the Lord, you are a spiritual ignoramus. The Apostle Peter said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Each one of us must fear the Lord. That's reverence, respect, all submission, obedience. We're not to fear God as we'd fear a tornado or a rattlesnake or a mad dog. At Ephesians 5.33, the wife is told to fear or reverence her husband. That doesn't mean when he comes to the house from work at night that she runs under the kitchen table and begins to shake all over. But she is to have respect for him. In a similar way, we are to respect the Father. We are to reverence Him. We are to be obedient to Him. Now, don't misunderstand me. Eventually, fear for the Lord will mean being afraid, that is, if we become disobedient and rebellious to His commandments. In Matthew 10, 28, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, that verse carries the idea of being scared if we are disobedient to the Lord. Now, the fear of God certainly includes and embraces repentance. A moment ago I said that fear is not repentance. What I meant was simply being scared is not repentance. James 2.19 says, Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The demons also believe and they tremble. Demons are scared. But did you ever read of one of them repenting? According to Acts 24, 24, and 25, after certain days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith of Christ. As he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and said, Go thy way, for this time, when I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Felix heard about righteousness because he was unrighteous, temperance because he never practiced self-control, and judgment to come because he was unprepared to meet God. His response was one of trembling. He was appalled. He was scared. And he said, uh, uh, I'll send for you uh, when it's convenient. Even though he was scared, he was not penitent. There isn't any indication in either sacred or secular history that the man ever did change. Have you ever been backed up in a corner where you were so scared you really couldn't express it? Have you ever been in a real bind and you made all kinds of promises to God and then didn't keep them? There are some people here tonight who have been on the edge of death. And when you were confronted with death, you were afraid. And you said, God, if you'll spare me, if you'll raise me up, I'll live the way I ought to live. A brother in Jackson County just north of here accidentally shot himself with an old shotgun. And when it looked as though he were going to die, he made a lot of promises to God. He got well, and he didn't keep his promises. Didn't do it. The bullets were flying fast and thick during the First World War in France. And a young man from that same Jackson County, Arkansas, had been drafted. And he was a part of the American Expeditionary Force. And he wrote back home to his good Christian mother and said, Just as soon as I get home, I'm going to be baptized. 
I'm going to make a change. I'll be a steadfast and a loyal Christian. The war came to an end in 1918. He had to stay in Germany a while longer as a soldier of the occupation. But he must have returned home in 1919 or 1920. But as far as I know, he never did change. He was scared, but he wasn't penitent. You know, I told that story one night in a meeting, and I failed to specify the war I had in mind. And after the service was over, a man and his wife were driving home. The man was lost. And he began to speak to her rather harshly because she had told me about him. I didn't even know he was there. He had had a similar experience during the Second World War. He had promised his parents that he was going to change. He came back home. That was several years later. He still wasn't a child of God. Now, that story has a happy ending. Because he did turn to the Lord, and he's now an elder in the Holden Avenue congregation at Newport. Yes, sometimes... When we're facing death, we'll make a lot of promises because we're scared, and then later on we don't keep them. Maybe there's someone here in the past who was on the verge of a divorce. And you said, Oh, God, keep us together. Help our family to remain united. Please, Lord, work this thing out for us, and I'll do your will. You're still together. The family's not divided, and you haven't kept your vow. Maybe you had a boy in Vietnam. He said, Lord, if you just get him home in one piece... You won't recognize me because I'll be such a changed, transformed, and dedicated person. The boy came back. You haven't changed. Or maybe you had a girl who went into a metropolitan community. It seemed as though she was about to throw in with the wrong crowd and maybe destroy herself. And you said, oh God, please help her. And if you'll help her, I'll change. I'll become committed. And somehow the girl made her way through, maybe with the help and the blessing of the Lord. But you didn't change. Maybe you were on the very brink of financial disaster. It looked as though your business would collapse and you begged God to help you. You made some vows and you made some promises and you made it through. But you didn't keep your vows. You didn't keep your promises. Scared? Oh, yes. Penitent? Oh, no. You can be scared and not be repentant. But I submit to you further that repentance is not sorrow. Now, there are two kinds of sorrow. That's 2 Corinthians 7 and 10, Paul said, Godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Let's look at worldly sorrow first. Frankly, I've always had some trouble understanding the case of Judas. I don't think he really believed Jesus would be killed. The Bible says when he saw, that is, when Judas saw, he was condemned. He went and gave the money back to the priest, and then he hanged himself. When he saw, he was condemned. Well, how in the world did Judas expect it to turn out? Apparently, he felt that the Lord would exert his kingly power, establish an earthly kingdom. He would be made the secretary of the treasury, and in the meantime, he'd pick up 30 shekels on the side. And the Lord never would know about it. And when he saw he was condemned, he repented himself. He experienced a kind of remorse or a kind of regret. And he went out and hanged himself. Now that can't be godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Had it been a godly sorrow that leads to the kind of repentance that saves, he wouldn't have killed himself. So it must have been a worldly sorrow. 
I can imagine that there are many people in the jails and the penitentiaries who are sorry about what they've done. But really not sorry for what they've done, but sorry because of the price they're having to pay. I remember a shellacking I got in either the 10th or the 11th grade. Man, I got a dilly. And I was so sorry about what I'd done. But now really, I wasn't sorry about what I'd done. I was sorry because of that adequate, and borrowed Bob Helston's language, treatment I was receiving from that teacher. And you know, if I'd had an opportunity to do the same thing the next day and I thought I could have gotten by with it, I probably would have tried it. Yes, there is a worldly sorrow, but there is a godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is not repentance, but the Bible says godly sorrow leads to repentance. And godly sorrow is being sorry before God for what one has done, whether anybody else knows about it or not. That's godly sorrow. In Genesis 39 and 9, when Potiphar's wicked wife tempted Joseph by saying, Lie with me, he said, How can I do this great evil and sin against you? Oh, no. He said, How can I do this great evil and sin against your husband? No. How can I do this great evil and sin against myself? No. How can I do this great evil and sin against my family? No. He said, How can I do this great evil and sin against God? If you don't remember anything else said tonight, I hope you'll remember that every sin is fundamentally an affront to God. Every sin is an offense to our Creator. Every sin is first and foremost the breaking of the loving heart of God. That woman was asking him to commit sexual immorality with her. His response was, how can I do this and sin against God? Since every sin is fundamentally against God, then we have to experience sorrow toward God for whatever sin we've committed if we intend to find forgiveness. Remember in Psalms 51, this was used by Jerry in the chapel speech this morning. After David had sinned with Bathsheba, and his prayer to God, he said, Against thee, thee only have I sinned. Why, he'd sinned against her. He'd sinned against her husband. He'd sinned against himself. He'd sinned against his family. He'd sinned against his nation. But when he offered that prayer to God, he was so overcome with remorse. He said, O oh Lord, against thee, thee only have I sinned. And he used a hyperbola or an overstatement. But he understood that sin, first of all, is against God Almighty. Now that's it, first of all. Thus, an individual, if he intends to truly repent, is going to have to experience godly sorrow. Be sorry before God, whether anybody else knows about it or not. I ask you tonight, if you've been guilty of gambling, are you sorry about it? I wonder how many of our church members have been to Hot Springs during the racing season. Don't see any harm in it. If I were on the subject of gambling tonight, I think I could give you a number of good reasons why no dedicated child of God will engage in gambling. But you might say you don't know anything about it. To the contrary, I know plenty about it because I was enslaved to gambling before I became a child of God. But a brother or sister is never going to quit it until, first of all, he or she recognizes it's evil and is sorry before God for having offended Him. Can you find it in your heart to be sorry about gambling? Are you sorry for drinking?
Are you sorry for the smoking of marijuana or for drug abuse? Are you sorry for having committed fornication? Are you sorry for dressing immodestly? We had a number of preachers on our campus last Tuesday, and I suppose a lot of them are rather narrow-minded like I am, and several of them were very disappointed in the conduct of some of our young ladies. I know. As a matter of fact, one of them made the statement when he went through the, the dining room line at noon, this is a Christian college, and here's what our kids are being sent to see or to participate in. Words to that effect. And if they had expressed themselves about the way some of our young men dress, I'm sure we would have heard similar language. Are you sorry because of the heavy petting in which you have engaged? You say, well, old man, you've forgotten about the physical attraction between the sexes. I'm not that old. Now, I simply deny being that old. And I've been right where you are. A good article came out not long ago in the church bulletin about the difference between love and infatuation. If two people are in love with one another, there will be a physical attraction. But there will be a physical attraction even if there is an infatuation and love is absent. I watch some of you as you walk up and down the streets or as you walk across the campus. And I'll tell you, if you act like that out in the broad open daylight, I wonder what takes place when it's dark. And I wonder what takes place when the two of you are sitting in an automobile all alone. But you don't understand love. To the contrary, I do understand love. But if it's really genuine, bona fide love, something on which to build a home, I know you can wait. And you can get back at arm's length. Because you can allow this physical attraction to get you so involved after a while, you can't tell the difference between love and infatuation. And you may not recognize this, kids, but a public show of affection is crude, it's cheap, and it's offensive to mature and sensitive people. Now, I mean it's offensive. You may not recognize it, but it is. Oh, well, you're trying to kill young love. To the contrary, I'm trying to encourage a real, pure young love. I don't think there's anything any more beautiful and bringing Christian boys and Christian girls together on our campus where they can meet one another and fall in love with one another and get married and build their home on the solid rock of God's truth and then go out to serve the Lord and serve their fellows. I've heard Christian colleges criticized. And some have said, why, you know, they're not a thing in the world but marriage factories. <laughs> that's all, just marriage factories. I maintain if that's all they were, they'd be justified. If that's all they were, man, they'd be justified. I believe that. I'm telling you, sir, if you really love her, you're going to keep your hands off of her in public. And when the two of you are together, you're going to be real careful. Real careful. And there are some Christian people who need to experience some godly sorrow. I mean, sorrow, be sorry before God for such conduct. Are you one of those who has engaged in shady business deals and therefore needs to experience a sorrow before the Lord because of it? Or is it malicious gossip, lying, cheating, stealing, cursing, telling dirty stories, the reading of pornography, the watching of filthy movies? Or is it a racist attitude 
You know, I'm superior to someone else because that someone else happens to be of a different race. Or perhaps it's being dominated by TV. Wasted days and wasted nights sitting in front of an idiot box almost every hour when one is awake. Forty hours a week watching TV. That's really edifying. It really builds one up. I'm afraid that most of it tears down. Then there's the mistreatment of one another in the same family. Some parents are so abusive and overbearing to their children, it's pathetic. They'd be nicer to any children in the community than they would to their own. Some children are so impolite and discourteous as they deal with their own parents. And some husbands and wives treat one another like a couple of dogs, and the kids are sitting around wondering why they ever married in the first place. We need to be sorry before God for such attitudes. Because even though we may be sinning against others and we may be sinning against ourselves, we're also sinning against our Lord who loves us. What about our attitude toward Christ and the church? Do we spend no time in prayer? Do we never read the Bible for our own benefit? Do we refuse to ever talk to another in the hope of trying to lead that one to the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we fail to be generous with our money? I'm not opposed to dating. I'm not opposed to buying some gasoline for that automobile. Well, what about the kid who'll spend 5 or $10 a week for gasoline and then let that collection plate pass him on Sunday morning? He doesn't put a nickel in it. What are his prerogatives? What's really important? Well, apparently gasoline's his God because there's where the money goes. Are you opposed to my driving? No, sir. you opposed to my buying some gasoline? No, sir. But I am opposed to all of it going there and none of it going to the advancement of the kingdom of God. I am opposed to that. Oh, you don't know. Oh, yes, I do. Because I had a car when I was a senior, and I still had an obligation to sacrifice what I was making for the ongoing of God's work. Some of us need to be sorry before God because of that kind of an attitude. We need to be sorry before God because we won't even attend church services regularly. Because we're irreverent in an assembly or at a chapel service. Jerry Jones told it right today. I had to sit on the second row in chapel when I came here. I sat next to a fellow named Chick Allison. Chick Allison never read a newspaper at chapel. He never read another book at chapel. He never went to sleep at chapel. He never did talk about something else in chapel. He never misbehaved himself. And that's one reason why Chick Allison helped me, a sinner, to see my need for the Savior. And if he'd acted otherwise, let me tell you, he wouldn't have had any influence on me. Absolutely none. Yes, we need to be sorry before God because of such activities. Godly sorrow is not repentance, but godly sorrow can lead to repentance. Godly sorrow is not even a changed life. That's true because an individual... beg your pardon. Repentance is not even a changed life. That's true because one can change his life without repenting. Say a fellow's been bad to drink. He says one day, you know, drinking is ruining my health. It's taking money from my family they need. I'm going to quit drinking. And he doesn't drink anymore. He doesn't even know God's in heaven. He doesn't even know that Christ went to the cross. But he quits drinking. He changes his life, not because he's repentant. He changes his life because he wants better help than he wants more money. You can change your life without being penitent. But on the other hand, if an individual does repent, he'll change his life. Jesus said in Matthew 7, By their fruits ye shall know them. 
In Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist said, "...bring forth fruits worthy or meet for repentance." If an individual is truly penitent of his wrong, he'll produce fruit to indicate such. Let's say he's been lying. You quit lying. He's been stealing. You quit stealing. He's been lying. He's been cheating. You quit cheating. He's been involved in sexual immorality. He'll bring that to a halt. If he is truly a penitent person, he's ready to get out of the sinning business. He doesn't come to the Lord with reservations. He says, I'm going to give it all up. I'm going to turn my back on it. And then he produces the fruit. Jesus went to the home of Zacchaeus, according to Luke 19. After eating with him, Zacchaeus said, Lord, I'm going to give half my goods to feed the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to return it fourfold. Now there's the fruits, or there are the fruits of repentance. He's been with Jesus. He's repented, and now he's beginning to produce the fruits of repentance. They always follow, just like night follows day. I don't want to be misunderstood. You can truly repent of a sin and later go back to it. That's bound to be true. If it weren't true, since when an individual becomes a Christian, he repents of all sin, then he'd be sinlessly perfect, and the doctrine of once saved, always saved would be established. But we are not sinlessly perfect, and once saved, always saved is not true. Hence, one can truly repent of a sin and then later on go back to it. But at least for a while, he or she will produce the fruit of repentance. It'll be evident. It'll be apparent. Those fruits will show at least for a while. What is repentance? Well, we've located where it stands. We know that it comes after conviction. And we know that it comes after godly sorrow. And we know it comes before a changed life. So right there it is. After conviction, after godless sorrow, before the changed life. What is it? So easy to say what it is, and yet so difficult to do. It's a changed will. In Matthew 21, 28, 29, Jesus said, What thank you? A certain man had two sons. He said to the first son, Go this day and work in my vineyard. He said, I will not. But afterwards he repented and went. Daddy, I won't do it. But later on, he repented and went. Now, when he repented, what did he do? He said, I will do it. I won't do it. That's impenitence. I will do it. That's repentance. Luke 15, 17 and 18. The prodigal son, after having wasted all of his substance and riotous living, after having come to himself, said, I will arise and go to my father's house. And I'll say, I've sinned against heaven and before thee, and I'm no longer worthy to be called thy son. Notice he said, I will arise. There's when he repented. But notice furthermore, he said that he'd sinned against heaven. There's your godless sorrow that led to repentance. I will arise. And then he arose and came unto his father. There's the changed life. Godless sorrow, change of will, change of action. So... Repentance comes after godless sorrow, and it comes before the changed life, and it has to do with the changed will. Some of the old-time preachers used to have sermons entitled, God's Hardest Commandment, and they always dealt with the subject of repentance. And this is it. This is the hardest thing God ever asked me to do, is to repent. You can do it that quickly, but it'll be the hardest thing you've ever done. 
Because when you repent, you surrender. You yield. You acquiesce. You quit fighting against God. You stack your arms of rebellion. You become a living dead person. You say, I'll become dead to my own aspirations and ambitions, and I'll become alive to your will, your direction, and your guidance. When I was in the army, I used to drill troops. We had a commandment to the rear march. And that meant if the fellows were all marching to the east, they turned and began to march to the west. And when you had a platoon standing at attention in the company street, you could give the command about face. And if they were facing the north, that means they turned and faced the south. That's precisely what repentance is. It's an about face. It's to the rear march. It's learning to hate what you used to love and love what you used to hate. It's taking all you are, all you have, all you ever expect to be, all you ever expect to have, and place it on the altar of sacrifice and say, Lord, it's yours from the top of my head to the sole of my feet. Heart, soul, mind, strength, body. It's all yours. Just speak. And I'll do whatever you say. That's repentance. That's it. It's when you yield your will to His will. And let me tell you, if you think that's easy, you better rethink it. It's the most difficult thing in the world I ever did was to give up. And as I pointed out in one of the sermons last evening, this is what it's all about. Whether Jimmy is going to be Lord or whether Jesus is going to be Lord. And last Sunday night, I made the statement that the key to lordship is repentance. And that's still right. The key to Christ being Lord and ruler and sovereign and master is repentance. And if I'll repent, then He can have His way in my life. And I tell you, once an individual genuinely repents, 99% of the battle's over. And if you can get to him with an open Bible before someone misleads you, he won't argue about being baptized. He's just like putty or clay in the hands of God, and he's ready to be shaped and formed into whatever fashion or image or design that God has in mind. Repentance is the hardest thing in the world for anybody to do. He's sorry before God for having done wrong. He changes his will then his life is changed. Is repentance enough? The Protestant world would say yes. That's enough. And the main argument used by the Protestant world to prove that position is this. When I repented, I felt so much better. Well, really, that's no argument for one who believes the Bible. Because that's an argument from one's own feelings. That's an argument based on subjectivity. Is there some sort of an external standard? Has God spoken on it? Really, the question is not how did you feel or how did I feel, but the question is how did God feel? Suppose I mistreat you. Ten minutes later, I repent. And I feel better because my attitude towards you has changed. But have I been forgiven? No. Forgiveness does not take place within me. It takes place within you. And so I say, Joe, forgive me because I've mistreated you. And you say, okay, Jim, I forgive you. Now the thing's settled. And so really the question is not how did we feel, but how did God feel? I understand an individual saying, I felt better when I repented because there's where he ceased to fight against God. But does God teach that when one repents, he is saved? 
Does God say that's sufficient? That's enough? And the answer is no. God doesn't say that. Look at Acts 2.38 again. God said through the Apostle Peter, Repent and... Well, there's something else. Repent and... Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I just beg you, if you're not a member of Churches of Christ, if you're not a part of this congregation, if you're visiting with us tonight, let me assure you, first of all, we're glad to have you. And in the second place, we're not trying to mistreat you. If we understand our own hearts, we simply want to enlighten you and to help you to see the truth at Acts 2.38. There is no way, grammatically, or logically to get remission of sins after repentance and before baptism. No way it can be done. The passage says repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. The prepositional phrase for the remission of sins modifies repentance. And it also modifies baptism. We are to repent for remission of sins. We are to be baptized for remission of sins. As a matter of fact, we are to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And there is simply no way to get salvation after repentance and before baptism and be fair with the passage. No way it can be done. Someone says, well, you know, that sounds like Campbellism. Sounds like Church of Christism. My friends, it's not a thing under God's heaven but pure, simple Bible. It's just the Bible. It was in there a long time before Alexander Campbell ever lived that people are to repent and be baptized in Christ's name for remission of sins. And if you're a visitor, let me add this. Only six times in the New Testament are baptism and salvation joined. Just six times. And in every one of those six passages, without exception, it's number one, baptism, and number two, salvation. It's always that way. That's always the order. And do you know why? Because that's the truth. That's the truth of the matter. Repentance is not enough for an alien sinner. He is to repent, and he is to be baptized in Christ's name for remission of sins that he might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why, it's not even enough for an erring brother. According to Acts 8.22, a brother who had sinned was told to repent and something else. Pray God, if perhaps a thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. To the one who is not a Christian, he is to repent and be baptized. To the careless Christian, he is to repent and pray. God has two laws of pardon. One for those outside the church and one for those inside the church. If you're outside, it's repentance and baptism. If you're inside and been negligent, it's repentance and prayer. Finally, what is God's approach to you to get you to repent? If I correctly understand the teaching of the Bible, generally speaking, the Lord doesn't have but three ways at each one of us. Number one is the threat of punishment. That's the first one. Jonah went to Nineveh. He said in 40 days God's going to destroy this community. But they repented. John the Baptist, according to Luke 3, said the axe is laid at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not bring forth good fruit is going to be hewn down and cast into the fire. And a lot of people repented. According to Acts 17, 30, 31, Paul, in speaking to those Athenian philosophers on Mars Hill, said the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, for he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world. And so first of all, there's the threat of punishment. There's a hell out yonder. There's a judgment to come. But there's another approach. 
At Acts 2.38, the Apostle Peter told the folk to repent and be baptized in Christ's name for the remission of sins that they might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, that approach is reward. You want your sins forgiven? You want the Holy Spirit to dwell in you? You want the hope of eternal life? You want the right to pray to God and expect to be heard? You want the fellowship of Christians? You want your name written down on the Lamb's book of life? You want all of these promises? Well, that's one way God has for moving people. They say, hey, I want God to bless me that way. And then there's another. In Romans 2.4, the Bible says the goodness of God leads to repentance. And the greatest expression of the goodness of God to you and me is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You take a long, hard look at the cross. You see the nails protruding from His hands and His feet. And you look at the stripes upon His back. And remember, He died for you. If you'd been the only one to ever live and had sinned, He would have died for you. He died for me. So there's the threat of punishment. And there's the promise of reward. And there's the goodness of God. Now, you forget about judgment in hell. And you forget about all the good things God wants to do for you. And you forget about the cross. And you'll wake up in torment. That's what will happen if you forget those three. Generally speaking, these are the three approaches. Punishment, reward, and goodness.